Welcome to The Private Project. Welcome back, everyone. This month marks the one year from when I decided to seriously commit to this project, and I'm so thankful for the response and support from all the listeners. Thank you. I would have never thought to do this without working with incredible private practice professionals who were open and honest about their experience and business. It is my great pleasure to introduce you to one of those mentors now, Dr. Kristen DiCataldi. She is a private practice paintings conservator who graduated in 2008 with a Master of Science degree from the Winnetor-University of Delaware program in art conservation. She obtained her PhD in preservation studies from the University of Delaware and completed a three-year Andrew W. Mellon Fellowship in Paintings Conservation at the National Gallery of Art, working on the treatment of old master easel paintings. Under the guidance of scientists and conservators at the National Gallery of Art, Kristen was given the opportunity to use a variety of analytical techniques, focusing on questions specifically relating to media analysis. She has also participated in internships and conservation positions at the J. Paul Getty Museum, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and the RISD Museum. Kristen earned a post-bac certificate in conservation in 2004 at the Studio Art Centers International in Florence, Italy, and a BA in chemistry from Grinnell College. She is the current project leader for MITRA, Materials, Information, and Technical Resources for Artists, a forum dedicated to connecting artists with conservators, scientists, and experts working in the art manufacturing industry. She is also co-leading a group of art conservators who are investigating hidden fluorescent inscriptions on works by Jean-Michel Basquiat. In this episode, we discuss Kristen's path to conservation, how she started her private practice during her third-year fellowship, and how she grew her business while earning a PhD. And now, here is my conversation with Dr. Kristen DiCataldi. First of all, I'm so excited to do this with you because you were the first conservator in private practice that I met. And I feel like I started this project because we've had conversations. And this is what made me think this is possible. Um, my first question is, how did you discover the field of conservation? I found out about conservation in college. So my junior year, I was on track to be a chemistry major, but I was taking a lot, a lot of uh, studio art classes, which I really liked, and a, a few art history when it came time to think about the next chapter of my life after college, I was sort of at a draw because I liked science and art. And I sat down with my supervisor, who's a chemist, and he started literally Googling things. He found art conservation. I was already going to go abroad. He encouraged me to only focus on the arts. I could do that and graduate on time, of course, with all of the requirements. When I went abroad, I just went to museums like every day. I gobbled it up. I went everywhere. I heard that there were Italian restorers working on a sculpture downtown in Florence somewhere. I would go and, and, and watch it and just soak it up. So I came back from that experience deciding that that's what I wanted to do. I can talk about my post-bac experience if you want. Yes. Okay. So that was a little challenging. I was a chemistry major and I was trying desperately to get some museum to take me, just volunteering. 
and I was in the Midwest. Nobody would take me because I was a science major. And I remember, you know, hardly anybody wrote me back, but when they did write me back, they were flummoxed. Like, why do you want to come work with us? You're a science major. What kind of, you know, background do you have? What Basically, what kind of skills do you think you can offer us here? Um, but in a very polite way. And they were right. I had no skills. You ha- don't have any skills. You know, when you're pre-programmed, that's the catch-22. But I still really wanted to volunteer. I moved up to the Twin Cities for a while, working odd jobs, and then just decided to say, screw it. And I took out a bunch of loans and did the Saatchi program in Florence. So I did the post-bac program for a year. It was, it was right for me because we got hands-on projects right away. And that is the best way that I learn. So we literally would have people drop rolled up paintings like in shopping bags from some poor church that had no money. And they were, you know, broke paintings, 18th century on red ground, dark ground. So they're crumbling like crazy and you're like thrown into the fire. And one of our classes was a fresco class, which was so cool. And there's a small church connected to an active convent. And the nuns were still, you know, there walking around when we were working. Their chapel had been compromised way back in the Florence flood. You could walk into the room and still see the line of from the water uh, level. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. So yeah, we were up on scaffolding, dealing with bat guano. And so the whole top of the chapel had been overpainted, as typically can happen. And so there were these really beautiful designs underneath this gray, dull, dingy overpaint um, with flowers that looked quite sickly, you know, by that time. They, so I was in, involved with like removal of the overpaint of that. And one of those teachers, Stefano Grossi, uh, this fourth generation restorer, he had his studio in Florence and he saw, he probably saw that I was completely OCD and would not stop working. And probably, <laughs> rightly said, oh, she would make maybe do well in my studio. He was a very friendly guy, didn't speak English, but he could understand some English for sure. And then I finished up my post back and then he basically hired me on. So I stayed there for about another year. He was pretty good at figuring out who would excel at what really quickly. I was the in painter. That's all I did. The first thing he gave me was just like this little fragment. It was clearly cut out of a larger painting. Again, broke, a lot of broke paintings. It was a little pooty. Um, and it was slightly damaged and it was just, you know, schlepping around a studio. So he put it in front of me and I started to in paint it. And I, I was just like, I, I totally remember that moment. I was like, I need to do this forever. And I remember he just let me do it. I wouldn't even go to like coffee, which is like sacrosanct for Italians. He's like, are you sure you don't want to go to coffee? Yes, I just want to do this. So I stayed there for like five, six hours. I just in painted that. And I remember when he came back, he was never very expressive, this guy. He came and, and, and looked at what I did afterwards. And he went, hmm. And that was actually usually a good sign. <laughs> I learned later, like after working with him, that was a good thing. I knew I needed museum experience because I decided halfway through I needed to go to grad school. I wanted to know more always about why are we using the solvent? Why does this solvent work, but this one doesn't? How do we know that this is an oil coating? Like, why do we say that we know these things? He gave me his blessing, and then I, um, I slowly started to try to put feelers out as to who would take me on volunteering in the East Coast. And it was a bit easier now because I had hands-on experience. And I found Mimi Levesque, who is so awesome. She's an objects conservator. Her big thing, claim to fame, is mummies. So she was at RISD Museum at the time, that was a godsend because that real, having that institutional 
pre-program experience, I, you know, learned later how important the schools value that. And I learned a lot. I, I worked mostly on objects with her, um, archaeological objects, but a number of other things, basketry, um, uh, mycin, porcelain, um, different things. I found that to be super fun because it really challenged me. I wasn't working on paintings, you know? So I, and we did frames. I mean, she threw everything at me. So you had to, I had to up my game because I <laughs> in painting was, is totally different when you're dealing with objects. So, but it was fun. It was great. When I was trying to figure out whether I wanted to stay in Italy and do the studio thing forever, I decided that I was going to interview conservators in Italy and conservators in the U.S. about basically the pros and cons of working in both countries. And I also uh, made a point to ask people about the schools, what they thought of the graduate schools, whether they thought it was worthwhile going to one, and the, the consensus was yes at the time. Yes, you, we encourage you. And this was like whether people were in private or not. I, and I did that for a selfish reason because I wanted to figure out where I was going to end up. And that's when I first really started learning about things like certification and echo. The EU was very much in full throttle at that time. You know, it was just starting out and all of this, it was a huge discussion over there about how this would affect the profession in Italy. And it's so crazy because it kind of totally screwed things up over there. I was considering maybe trying to go to school, graduate school in Italy. Also, you'd have to pay a little bit through the nose to do it, but happy in retrospect that I didn't do that. But I also was had my eye on Courtauld a little bit. Again, it would be even more expensive to go for me at the time to go to the UK. But why I really decided to not even consider going to school in Italy is because because the EU had formed, you know, fairly recently, um, it was totally screwing up the way that the schools were functioning. So I'll just give like sort of an example. So these students who would work years and years and years towards getting a degree, they would all of a sudden have to tack on three more years in order to meet EU standards, for example. And that was just out of the question, you know, for these young people. And I and I would sit around and listen to some of my Italian like peers, conservation students, and they were just griping and moaning and just just freaking out about what was gonna happen. And I was like, oh, I think I'm gonna go back home. I know it's super hard to get into the schools here, you know, in the US, but I'm gonna give it a try anyways. And I learned also in a big way that yeah, financially it's rough in Italy. Power in numbers, I think that these firms, um, private firms are do really well in Italy and uh, they get great projects, but it is hard to go there and try to make it on your own. There's too many students, Italian students that you'd be competing against for like a museum position, like forget about it. It just doesn't, it's too hard. So I was looking at all those factors and considering them and then just decided to come back home. And what graduate school did you attend? And can you elaborate on that experience? Right. So I was given, unfortunately, a lot of misinformation about how the application process worked and what the schools in the field at AIC, meaning our national group, what AIC valued and what the schools valued. And so I was really looking at Buffalo and Winter, and I gravitated towards the Winter University of Delaware program because I had heard and this was correct, that they really had a big emphasis on science. And I thought, well, that might work out for me, given my background. And so I applied to Buffalo 
Um, nothing was digital when I was applying, <laughs> not a thing. So I sent all my stuff to Buffalo and they told me like, you don't have enough experience or something, or we don't like your studio art. You need more studio art experience. And then with, yeah, Winnetary sent my information in and then they, I barely got an interview, I believe. And that was super lucky. So I was thrilled to even have gotten an interview. Like I just went in there so elated. Like I wasn't, I was so happy. I wasn't even, that was a little nervous, but I was just like, wow, I got an interview. And like, I just I showed up and I was like beaming. I was just like, yeah, man, that's right. I worked really hard to get here. I managed to somehow get on the wait list. And I was super excited when like Debbie called me. I was already looking up what courses I needed to enroll in for the next year. I was already making emails about like internships. Yeah, I barely got in. That was 2005. And can you talk a little bit about your time in graduate school and some of the internships that you did and why you chose the places that you interned? Okay, so I, I had some great, I had some great internships. The first summer I ended up going to the Getty and that was an easy one to pick um, because it was an impaying project. It was like meant to be. Tierna Doty called uh, Joyce from the Getty and said, we have these huge paintings, huge, by Jean-Baptiste Udry and there's yards of in painting. Do you have anyone? That was an insane experience because I got to go to the Getty for my first formal internship, which was way over my head in terms of like the experience wise. Project wise, fit me perfect. Um, I finally started getting into the, th- you know, like used to PVA by the time I went to the Getty. And then Tierna was like, we're going to use gambling now. And I was like, oh, <laughs> don't. So I was like, okay, I guess I can try gambling. I've never used that before. A week and a half or something. And then I finally got it, but it was a little bit rough. Um, And then I also developed a really keen interest in microscopy during my second year. Um, And then Joyce contacted the Rice Museum. So one of our student speakers, the one that I invited was Patria Noble. So this was at the time when um, lead soaps was just breaking the news. And so we decided to invite her to Winter. She came, gave a lecture, and then Joyce approached her about having me maybe as an intern for the summer. And that's sort of how that solidified. So I was at the Rice Museum. So I would say I didn't really have a great hands-on project there. And it was really me just helping them set up their microscope. They wanted to set up a staining station. So I was happy to do that. In hindsight now, I would never would have signed on to that because now I don't actually believe in stains. I don't think they're that effective, but that's a good debate to have with colleagues. So I set up their microscope station for them and printed out all the specs for the microscope, put it on the wall. And I came back and this was probably the dumbest decision I have ever made. I allowed myself six days in between my Rice Museum internship and starting my internship, my third year internship at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. And I was supposed to move there at the end of August. If you know anything about moving to Washington, D.C. at the end of August, (laughs) you know that you need to, the best thing to do is to be in Washington, D.C., first of all, and you better get a place in June because all of the summer interns descend and there's nothing left except deep, dark, dungeon-like English basement apartments, which is what I was left with, or things that were exorbitantly priced. So I didn't have a place to live for a month. So I was living in Delaware 
and commuting daily on the Mark train, not sleeping, not able to take care of myself. In fact, I told Sarah Fisher, who was the head of the lab at the time, I said, Sarah, don't give me any, any project. Like I will do condition checks or like computer work or whatever. Do not give me anything to treat that's major right away. Cause I am not like, I don't feel uh, comfortable doing that yet until I find a place. So the first place that I loved that I saw, it was too expensive. This is germane to um, this podcast and I'll tell you why. Um, so the first apartment that I saw was in like the Calorama area. I filled out their application and then they called me back. They love me. I love them. They're like, oh my God, it's great. She's working at the National Gallery. This is amazing. And then, and this actually speaks to like, it's, it really speaks to something. These two men, they're very, they're very well off, very affluent. Um, when they looked at my application, they saw how much I was going to be making at the gallery. They called me up and they were crestfallen. They're like, we love you. We want you to have this apartment, but we don't think it would be responsible of us to take you because there's no way you can afford this place. We see what you're making. We see what the National Gallery, <laughs> we see what your stipend is, and there's just no way. You're not going to be able to make it. And I said, oh, please, please, I'm going to be able to make it. I will be able to make it somehow because I had worked odd jobs my entire life. Waitressing, bartending, retail, I have done all of it. So I was going to make it work. And they were like, no. And I was just like, okay, fine. So the next best offer I had was the basement underneath a frat house. I mean, they weren't in college anymore, but they might as well have been. And it was horrible. They were stringing me along, sort of seeing how high they could go with the rent. So they were pitting me against other potential renters. It was awful. And I, I all of a sudden got a call from the very sweet gay couple. And they were like, we have interviewed like five people and we just, we, we just love you so much. We're going to give it to you. And I was like, you're kidding. And there was a time in 95 where I was either going to be homeless and not have any place to move, or I had two places, you know, like it was nuts. Right away, I sold my car because you don't have a car in DC. So I had a little bit of money to go on. And then I started private practice right away. <laughs> to help pay for that apartment. And that helped. And I wasn't even really that far out of grad school, right? So I was taking jobs kind of, I want to say six months after I got there in that tiny little apartment. And can you discuss logistics of starting and running your business while working as a fellow? Yeah, so I didn't do it very smartly, but I tried to do, I tried to do the best I could, right? Because you're still... I mean, I was still in school mode, right? And I knew that, that there was CIPP, right? Conservatives and private practice. There was just so, there were so many bad rumors about CIPP. Like there would be yelling fights sometimes at AIC. And like, in hindsight now, I kind of miss those loud, obnoxious voices because they tend to bring out the most informative, the most informative dialogue because people would get into it, but you would still learn. Like if somebody got into a fight about Biva, I had a Biva folder. So I would filter away things like that. There wasn't as much though discussed about like insurance, right? The setting up the business. It was more like practical stuff. So there was very little of that. The schools weren't teaching it. They didn't have their private practice seminars. So I didn't have very good resources in setting up business. I did have the wherewithal to develop sort of contract and I don't know how I got my hands on it, but CIPP at some point had a contract template and someone gave it to me and I modified it like to fit my needs. But yeah, I mean, looking back, I probably could have gotten sued. <laughs> I'm 
sure. And like, it would have been really bad, but I mean, you know, I made sure though, I knew to be smart about insurance. So making sure that if you bring me something, you're, you're insuring it, not me. Right. So that's a, that's a big thing that people could get you on. So people, you know, if they sign my contract, they sign away that, you know, uh, that right. And then I just, you know, generated reports like I always do kept records, you know, try the best I could doing photo documentation in that little apartment found the best place to, that I, where I could do the photo documentation. I mean, there was definitely things like barriers in terms of, but you just, when you have to pay for an expensive apartment in the city, you just have to make things do. I will say during my time there, the best, the best thing that happened to me in terms of educating myself about private practice was I was involved with WCG, so the Washington Conservation Guild, and I met a lot of great conservators in the area through that. Lisa Young being one of them. Lisa Young is great. So she's an objects conservator, works like with Air and Space, Smithsonian. Um, but she also ran her private practice out of her home. She volunteered, bless her, to give at her home. She gave us a little mini seminar on how she set up her business. And it was great. But other than that, you know, even asking conservator, like I would say half of the staff, the paint staff at um, the gallery did private work on the side. It was like verboten to ask about, like, how do you manage your business? Like, and I don't feel like that should be that way. But I definitely felt that way. How did you find your first clients when you were in Washington, D.C.? So I would get sloppy seconds. <laughs> the paintings conservators at the gallery, if this was not a project they were interested in, I, I would get it. And um, every once in a while, I'd get a client that had more than one painting. Also, I was very good about going around and giving talks to colleges and and like also art and antique places, appraisers, historical societies, like stuff like that. And you just you put your face out there enough and you start getting callbacks. And also, Brian, he'd get a project referred, you know, in Delaware. So, you know, we would bring it down to D.C. and work on it. And then when we he had to go back up to Delaware to teach, he would return it. And what kind of treatments were you able to perform right. in your space? So my um, apartment also had a backyard patio. If something needed to be varnished, we could bring it out there. And it also had a tiny little um, laundry room. Mm -hmm. So... If things were stinky or off-gassing or needed to dry or something like that, like we'd put it in there up high on a rack. Um, but And then varnishing, like stuff like that, we would do outside. Or if it was noxious cleaning, you know, out there with a respirator and gloves. Mm -hmm. But yeah, again, in hindsight, like it's not, not ideal. Like do not recommend like <laughs> doing this. But also going back, this was 2008 to 2011 because I was there as an intern and I stayed on as a fellow. So I was there for four years, which is like amazing um, because as you know, we have to move around an awful lot. I was, you know, prepared to have to move again, but I didn't have to. So um, yeah, we just, we figured out how to use that apartment and to get things done. Um, yeah, but in, in hindsight, it would have been, <laughs> I would have, if I had had the money at that time and the capital if I could have, I would have purchased a, a fume extractor. Yeah. But I didn't have that kind of cash. It was all going to rent and food. It was ex extraordinarily expensive. And after your time as a fellow, how did you transition to private practice full time? Um, when I was a fellow, I, so you have to have a research project. My project was focusing on how to accurately characterize egg tempera um, and differentiate egg tempera paint films from oil paint films. Uh, it sounds very straightforward, but it, in fact, is not and worthy of a PhD. So I didn't figure that out 
until I had three years of doing that research under my belt at the gallery um, because I thought it would be very simple in looking at the literature because the literature tells you it should be very easy to answer these questions. And when I started looking into it and actually running samples from real paintings and my own paint outs, no, it wasn't simple at all. The machines were telling me like different stories. So I didn't know what to do with this. I was so flummoxed by it. Yeah, and I was working a lot of the time with uh, the scientists. I was in the science department a lot. So the analytical testing that we were doing for my PhD was um, we were never going to actually get a clear picture, an accurate representation of some of these paint films. So I kind of sat around and reflected about, you know, what what happened there. And I came back to my editor and I, I sat down with Richard Wolberts and uh, Joyce L. Stoner and Debbie Hess-Norris. I told them about my findings and um, at the gallery and my research. And they're like, you should just do a PhD. And Joyce is like, yeah, and you can do your private practice too. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that sounds fine. So I basically just transferred, but I, I didn't bring clients with me, right? Joyce knew that I was, I was in the area and I was on her radar and she would give us referrals. And so that was starting at around 2010, 11. But I was also in the full, like full PhD mode as well. So I was doing um, private practice and, and research. So in the beginning, it was like three, three and a half days devoted to my PhD and then maybe two to my business, give or take. But you have to understand that I was really fortunate. All the research and tests and analysis I did at the gallery, I kept that and I used it in my dissertation. So I already had a lot of stuff done. It just needed to be cleaned up. I needed to be, I needed to follow it up with more like testing, which I did. So it took me four years to get my PhD. It, was, it would probably have taken me three if I didn't do private practice. But then, of course, dear Joyce knocked on our door and was like, Terry Linnelli has called me and there's this big mirror, this big 12 by 20 foot painting up at Villanova. You want to do it? And I was just like, oh, yes, I do. This project looks great, but I'm doing my PhD. She's like, it's OK. I'm on your committee. It's fine. You should do it. And I'm like, OK. So we moved again. We moved to media Pennsylvania so I could do that project that was hard that was hard to juggle that and I was taking additional paintings still on the side and those last two years I was having to finish writing looking back that was a lot I probably wouldn't have crammed all that in again but um I could definitely have used the money the money was good um from the Villanova project and so I kind of swapped I would spend more like three to four days on my private practice and then one you know day and then overlapping in the weekend like for sure um you know weekends my weekends got eaten right at that point so writing a lot of writing i got my phd in 2016 and for your first few clients in dc and then the delaware area how did you determine how much to charge for treatment right that is always the question that's hard so i started off charging hourly if a client is willing to come to me with painting, I'll give them, I give them free consultation. Um, and I will give them a free consultation just to sit there with them looking at the painting. I'll look at them in the UV and I, sometimes I'm able to give them uh, a quote right then and there. And sometimes I say, if you're willing to leave this with me, I can do some tests. And I, I do this free now too, cause it's kind of no sweat off my nose anymore. And then I will just email you a quote 
And then if you say you want to go ahead, I'll drop a treatment proposal and you sign it and we go from there. So I was charging by the hour. And so at that time in DC at around like 80, when I was getting my PhD, I ratcheted it up closer to a hundred and people weren't balking, but I stopped using that. And I just started going by the project and that most of the time, if you get good at that over time, most of the time you come out on the winning side. Um, there's always going to be a couple projects that you go, oh, bummer. I totally, I totally lost the money on that. But hopefully it, it evens out in your favor. And it has for me every year, knock on wood. When would you say your business became profitable? Probably the last later years of my PhD. I mean, it's like hard. So I wasn't doing very good bookkeeping when I was in DC at all. It was like, oh my gosh, I made like $700 off of this. <laughs> oh, yay. That's like half of rent. I was already looking at it like, wow, that painting can help me eat. The painting can help me do this. Uh, which is kind of weird because, you know, I was also going to work at the gallery and like totally had a different mindset, like deep dive, technical research, you know, um, cleaning amazing paintings, like not looking at them like that at all. When you build up enough clients, then I feel like you can start the bookkeeping. Mm -hmm. But certainly it's not a bad idea to start right away. You know, this is where you have to talk to accountant. When we're self-employed, we get nailed with taxes. This country is not kind. <laughs> Those who are self-employed. So when I started to get more clients, I had, you know, you have to. Delaware, I was like, oh, okay. And I, I was reporting all of my income and able to slowly have minor tax write-offs, like very small. But then we moved to Pennsylvania. Their taxes are insane. But that's something to keep in mind. You know, you got to look at what your, how your state is going to deal with you. Because that very much matters in how you decide to bookkeep and report things and take things into account in terms of writing things off. If you live in a state like Pennsylvania, then you need to raise your rates accordingly because you're going to end up paying for it later. So I learned, you know, trial by fire, but I was okay because I had a stipend also all this time. I had a stipend at the National Gallery. I had a stipend as a grad student, which is amazing. So, I mean, it wasn't like I was rolling in dough, but... I wasn't um, completely destitute. I had some sort of cushion to fall back on, but I could kind of get my feet wet with like learning the ropes of all that sort of thing. Um, so I first became, yeah, majorly pro starting in 2016 on. Let's also talk about healthcare. So did you have healthcare benefits at the National Gallery or did you have to purchase that separately? No, I did. Um, there was a time I didn't, it's right when I needed it. The problem was that system, and it's a big behemoth system, was not used to retaining interns. So I went from an internship, I was covered under UD, and National Gallery didn't have to deal with me. When I graduated, right, got my master's, I stayed there as a fellow. And I don't know who it was, but someone forgot that I was there. So. I had a health issue and I needed to take it, take care of it. And I did have coverage, but I learned that because they blew it and there's something I could do. I couldn't sue them. I couldn't do anything, but I had to basically be, I was in pain for six months for this stupid preventable thing because I didn't have health insurance. I was fine in the end, but I had to wait. I had to wait it out and it sucked. So yes, I had healthcare. And then I was a PhD student and I had healthcare obviously. And then I got married 
and then I had healthcare. So I've lucked out, except for that six month period in DC. Um, and also when I was in Italy, didn't have healthcare over there. I've lucked out big time with healthcare. And I know, talking to colleagues, I know how valuable that is. I'm ever, forever grateful for having it because Affordable Care Act is maybe should be called the semi-affordable care act sometimes. Um, I mean, but at least we can get it. I believe it's a tax write-off. So for people that are having to pay for that, um, you just talk to your accountant about that. I don't know how that works because I haven't had to deal with it. So you've expanded your business, starting to get some profits in, and then what types of equipment and tools did you purchase later on? And what types of treatment were made possible through those purchases? The first, you know, little purchases you get are easel and lights and tools. And what's nice is I think other people have already mentioned on your show is that like the grad schools, at least Winterthur does, they give you like that little kit, starter kit, which is really, I still have some of that stuff. So that's really great. Also, thank you, Golden Company. Brian and I are good friends with Mark Golden and, and all the people there are so wonderful. We collaborated with them on trying to get the um, PVA paints reformulated again because they weren't being sold. I benefited from that because I walked away with free paint essentially, but I did, and they did have the goodness of their heart to look into that for free, you know? Um, it's amazing when you have a giant company like that that cares so much about conservation and they do something like, you know, for our tiny field that means so much. So I have a lot of PVA paint. Um, from that project, but it's not like I didn't work hard for it. Co-authored a publication on PVA paints and presented on that research. If you tap into industry and you come to these companies and you're like, I have this project and I know you guys make this kind of spatula, but I need a special kind of spatula. Can you make this? Because I think it will help somebody else down the road. There are certain things you can do when you team up with businesses, you can get equipment. So the next big thing was fume extractor. And I'll tell you, people out there should call these fume extraction companies and ask if you're starting out, and this applies for many companies, I think, in industry, you can ask for the model. So when they take things on the road and they show um, potential clients, like it gets schlepped around, there might be some scuffs on it, some dents, but they'll sell it to you for like almost half the price. And I got my first fume extractor that way. And it's still working fine. And then after that, the next big thing I got was a hot table. That was like 16.5, and that has paid for itself in droves. The hot table was a big, big deal because I doubled my workload. I, we could do so much more. I would say about a third of the time, we have to use it, or not even just to line. Sometimes we just have to use the hot table to flatten, to you know relax. Also, I let all my colleagues know in the area that I had a hot table. So if they had a project that they couldn't do because they don't have a hot table, they would refer it to me. I also, pre-COVID, was even going to let people come in and use it, you know, for a fee. And then I got a microscope. And then I got a huge easel, which is like five, $6,000 easel. And they, they actually get, easels get insane. They get even more expensive than that. But that wasn't until later when I was profiting. And in terms of clients, so at first you were getting referrals from the National Gallery and then people in Delaware. How have you expanded the way you found clients and what's the most effective strategy that you found? Um, sadly, I will say that not the find a conservator database <laughs> that hasn't really ever panned out that much. Um, maybe that will change, hopefully. Um, but I was all gung-ho and ready and signed up for that thing immediately, hoping that down the road it would pay off. And it, I maybe gotten like five gigs from it. So most of the time, a couple other big conservators in the area have, have, have segued into retirement. Mm -hmm. I've started getting referrals through them. But um, 
that that has definitely been key. I did the same thing. Like I mentioned when I was in DC, I went around and talked a lot to gave talks. And I did that a uh, big time when we moved back up here. So we, Brian and I went around and gave like lots of talks to historical societies and little museums and, um, you know, DCCA and went to Philly universities up there. Like we did it all. So that's a good way. You contact art history departments, you contact sometimes the science departments, you know, local historical societies, any antique dealers that have like fairs or what have you, appraisers, contact those appraisers because you people are going to come and and with their with their stuff and be like, hey, can you appraise this for me? And they'll be like, well, yes, but you see there's a chip in this china or, oh, yes, there, but there's a tear in your painting. So you, you might want to get that tended to because it does affect the value. I mean, the damage affects the value. But some of these old timey appraisers, some of them are a little bit confused and misinformed about our field. I think it's because they've had bad run-ins with hack jobs, honestly, like hack job restorers. And I can't blame all of them, but like... Some appraisers are like, no, never take it to a store. They'll scrub it. They'll scrub it down to nothing. And, and then it will lose its value. And, and you're like, no, 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 no. First of all, you can't see your painting right now. It's filthy and it's got two holes in it. So it, no matter what, I'm going to increase the value of your painting, right? So I think to carefully, just gently um, engage with nearby appraisers, get them, develop a relationship, develop, you know, um, a rapport, maybe get them to trust you, right? And and you can sh- you can send them some treatment reports. What's wrong with that? You know, just block out the private, you know, the information that you don't need to share about clients and whatnot. Um and, you know, uh, and if there's like a little antique or appraiser association in your area, you can offer to give a talk. I have never had to do a website, which is crazy. And and that's just because I was always after my fellowship if I didn't get a PhD, I would have started a website for sure. I will say I am very blessed and strategically located. Uh, who knew Delaware Tax Haven was going to be like the home of all art storage companies ever. So I'm in like 25 mile radius of five giant or art storage facilities. Mm-hmm. And that took off, I want to say five years ago. And they all have my name and I'm on like speed dial with some of them. So that has been, uh, that's been huge. Find out who's shipping the art by you because they're usually the ones to find damage first. Find that, those companies and give your name out, give your information out and send you them your website. How have you established a balance between work, time for you and time for your family? I haven't. I have established a balance for my work and my family. Time for me has gone out the window since COVID. And I'm slowly retraining myself to get that back. It's hard. Fortunately, I have some good support. Like my mother, like she's like, wow, you're a train wreck because you are not taking ton of time for yourself. This is very easy to figure <laughs> out. So, I mean, it helps to have people like shake you and be like, you need time for yourself. Because I've just devoted a hundred in 10% to everything else and not enough time to me. So I've started to do a better job at that and make a concerted effort. And it's hard because I have my studios in my basement. So like work is always beckoning. So now I am like forbidding myself from doing a lot of work at all on the weekends, which is good. The problem is I think I developed a bad habit during my PhD years. And then like that kind of just stayed with me and then COVID happened. Ugh. I'm finally at a point where I think I have a good balance just now. Mm. Just just little things, they matter. They add up. 
mental space. We totally need it because in this field, we're all perfectionists and we're all OCD a little bit. And if you're, if you're your own boss, it's really easy to get lost in the work and it's not always good. Our later question, do you ever reach the limit of how much work you can take on? And when do you know that you're starting to take on a little bit too much? So I started to turn away some work earlier this year because I was too busy. Lots of life stuff happened. People can choose to turn away work. What I do is I delay it. I say, I can't do this right now, but I can do it X, Y, and Z later this year. Or if it's a client that is a pain, you up the price. <laughs> so you say, oh, do you need this now? Oh, yes, I need it in a month. We have an exhibit. And this is a client that you've worked with and they know better. So you're like, oh, okay. So you you up your price. You up your quote. Because dealing with that, you say, oh, I got to put a rush fee on that. And you decide how much you want to put on. And if they decide to go with it, it's still painful because you will break your back. And make, but you will walk away with a good amount of cash mm -hmm. and it'll be worthwhile. And if they say no, it's fine. And then you have mental health <laughs> to tend to, right? So I was doing a bit of that, but then I bought a house and now I'm not turning away anything because <laughs> I have a mortgage to pay, but it's fine. I mean, like, you know, it, it's all good. And where have you found resources to help start or run your business other than you're saying the workshop in Washington and maybe some CIPP resources? AIC, sorry, I'm just going to be perfectly honest here, has not been a friend to those of us in private practice. It's been kind of antagonistic working with them. They have not really been that supportive. The CIPP community has had to like really do stuff on their own. They're doing so much stuff. Mm. I also was a RATS officer <laughs> during my PhD. I saw how much work firsthand it is to be one of these officers and volunteer. Honestly, all the officers should be paid. It is so much work. And then on top of it, if you try to improve the situation, oh boy, you're looking at an uphill battle. If you try to add resource, it's, it's a lot of work. And you know, figuring out this new higher logic system they have, that's a lot of headache for everybody. I just saw that they put up updated contracts on if you're a CIPP member, you can get that. To be honest, though, I have like two or three contracts. So like if I'm dealing with, let's say, a Rembrandt, I am going to have a contract that's like 20 pages. If I'm dealing with like sweet little old grandma who lives down the road who has like a picture of a painting of roses with a hole in it, I'm not going to give her my 20-page contract. That is insane. Um, so I have like a three-page contract for her, you know, that's very basic. Like, at least it's not terrifying. Also, you have to keep that in mind if you're starting your private practice. Don't scare away, like these templates that are out there, you can tailor them down. Some of them have a lot of legal speak in them, legalese, that is like, whoa. I mean, you can choose to keep some of it, um, but really read through it and pick apart clauses that that make sense to you, that work, and, that, and think about the other person, that you're, the, the client. If I have clients that are in Dubai who I never meet, they're going to get my 20-page contract. <laughs> but like a historical society is not going to get the scary contract. I mean, it depends on what kind of things they have maybe. But um, that's something to keep in mind. Know that these templates have already been vetted by lawyers. So as long as you don't fudging things around too much, um, you should be fine. Do you have any advice for people who are interested in maybe starting their own business? How do they prepare themselves for a future in the private sector? I think to start, just join CIPP because those of us that have been through these rough patches and survived and come out the other side, we're doing something right. You know, I, 
we've done something right. So, and some of those people I see, they're in, they're officers right now. So I uh, happy feelings about that. I have um, hope. Um, so I think like to join CAPP, um, uh, but also join your small business, um, like nonprofit groups run by this through the state. So there's one for female owned uh, private businesses. Basically, I found my accountant through them. So we'll have lists of like lawyers and accountants that are familiar with people's needs as small business owners. Mm -hmm. That's been really valuable. Um, Also, I haven't had to do this. But let's say you want to go get something like a hot table right now those nonprofit centers can help you apply for a loan with the bank and what have you. And so so like if you did want to get some of those big ticket items right out of the gate, that's the kind of thing that they help with. And last question, what is an unlikely but necessary part of running your own business that you think listeners should know about? In private practice, you don't have to work that much with people because you're in like your studio a lot. But when you do have to work with people, boy, do you have to work with people, like with all walks of life. And so, you know, you have to think about that sort of like in retrospect, I did so many odd jobs and I didn't realize how valuable that would be in dealing with the public and getting a feel for people and reading them, reading my clients and what they're comfortable with doing or not doing. But also, you know, when you're working in like a giant restaurant and there's like all these moving parts and everything's working, going really fast. Because I work with all these art storage facilities, sometimes we have to work on really big projects that are quite scary. And, you know, you have like the engineers coming in, the art handlers, and then like the client and like, and there's a lot of moving parts and you have to be quick and ready to think about things. And you have to be open to hearing other people's ideas and brainstorming and, I think the perception is that like private conservators are just like miserly in our little studios in the basement and we don't like get out very much, but you have to be a chameleon and you have to be ready for that. And so like some of the weird odd jobs or life experiences that you've had, like you actually may have more resources within you on how to handle those things. Like don't discount that fast food job. Like you have stuff that you've gone through in your life that is applicable to everything that will come your way in private practice. Because believe me, everything will come your way. It is not boring. Like you you are not, you're not bored. If you are bored in your private practice, then you, you're not doing something right. You have to, you have to change your game because it is not boring. You are constantly being thrown with wild projects um, will come your way. And sometimes there are things that may be outside your skill set but sometimes you have to take them because depending on what's going on in your life, don't discount all of your experience with odd jobs, even dealing with high maintenance family members. That can be very, very useful and to your favor when dealing with high maintenance clients. It just can. So I think keep that in mind. Like your clients are not going to all be like rosy, sweet little grandmas that want to like hand things down. That's my favorite client, by the way. Like like who just wants to like preserve something for the next generation. Um, they're going to be some maybe jerk collector who's very particular about things and has a very strict deadline. And so, you know, you have to deal with people skills, but also I think it's okay. Don't be afraid to like set boundaries mm-hmm. because sometimes these people will walk all over you and you can't let them. I spoke about the rush fee earlier you know, you got to sometimes stick up for yourself. Sometimes these people take advantage of like, if you are efficient, 
They'll take advantage of it. Don't let them. It's okay to say no if you have a toxic client. Like you you will know when you have one. And thirdly, I think it's really good to reach out to other private people in your area. Don't be afraid to do it. Maybe not everybody's going to respond to you, but especially people that are also starting out and especially people that are in different specialties because you can refer clients to each other. Develop your own network right away by doing that. It's harder if you're in a place where there's no one else by you. Don't be afraid to reach out because oftentimes, you know, people would like some FaceTime. It's nice to engage with colleagues sometimes. Definitely let all the museums in your area know that you're starting a private practice for sure. I mean, I think I already said like go around and give talks and things. Probably don't want to go to a museum uh, that has a conservation department and offer to give a talk. Don't do that. But, um, you know, like sometimes you could have, if you do have like a microscope, and the conservator at the museum doesn't have one, maybe you guys could collaborate on a project together. Like there's there's things that you can do with museum colleagues sometimes. Well, thank you so much for your honesty as always. This has been so great. I really appreciate it. Sure. And props to you for starting this podcast adventure, Kelsey. Hats off. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on the podcast, please visit theprivateproject.com. On the website, you can view a complete episode list, submit your feedback, and donate to support the project. All donations go directly to the interviewees, who take time out of their busy schedules to talk to me. This also incentivizes those not in my network to be interviewed and allows me to bring more diverse content to you. Thank you for your support. Hello, everyone.